Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent, which is, it's a traditional season of longing, longing for the coming or Advent of Christ the King and the gifts that only Jesus can give. So over the next four weeks of Advent Sundays, we're going to be thinking about our deepest longings together, or some of our deepest longings. Today, we're going to be thinking about longing for honor. And we're going to do it uh, and finish Genesis at the same time. So the last 13 chapters of Genesis will be our Advent sermon series text. And if you know the book of Genesis, you'll know that those are the stories of Joseph and Judah, right? The Joseph in the coat of technic I don't remember the name of it, but you know, the, tech, the fancy coat. Um, that story of Joseph, that story of Judah, it's a story about honor, among other things. And honor is, it's not something we talk about a lot, but it's something that we feel a lot. It's something that's way deep down in us, a desire for honor. That's why Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, has sold 30 million copies. Is because we desire honor. It's something we want. We want to be recognized for our work. We want to be enjoyed by other people, don't we? We want to be valued by somebody. We want to be somebody's treasure. That's a desire for honor. And the Bible isn't curmudgeonly about that. The Bible doesn't, God doesn't come through the text and confront us and say, you shouldn't want that. The Bible actually says you're made for that. That's what Genesis 1 is about, verses 26 through 28. Humans were made and crowned with dignity and honor, not because we are intrinsically valuable, but because God values us, right? So that desire for honor goes really deep into the sort of substrata of what it means to be a human. I was just reading uh, Flannery O'Connor's book, Wise Blood, yesterday. It was very sad. If you haven't read it, I don't know if you can handle it. The sadness, I couldn't. It was hard to sleep. There's a character named Enoch who is, he wants to matter so bad. He wants to be significant and he's driven mad to the point of wearing a gorilla suit and committing heinous crimes the desire for honor. Dr. You know, Victor Frankenstein wants to have honor in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, wants to have honor and notoriety as a scientist and creates, you know, a monster and becomes a monster. Or in another piece of classic literature, uh, Woody in Toy Story <laughs> desperately wants to be Andy's favorite toy, doesn't he? And that desire for honor I want to be his favorite. I've got his name on my foot. It crushed the people around him. And it crushed him. Woody had to learn what Enoch couldn't learn and what Dr. Frankenstein couldn't learn. That the way up is down. Isn't it? The way up to honor is down in humility. And that's what this story is about. The Advent season is an annual reminder that the person with the most dignity and honor, the most exalted person in the universe, came down in humility. So if we desire honor, and we do, on some level, we deeply do, the way is not the way that we think it is. It's not, 
lift yourself up. It's not grab and take honor. It's receive it and get low in humility. And frankly, it's only in connection to Jesus. You know, I know it's a bit of a spoiler. We're going to get into the whole Joseph story over the next four weeks. But Joseph's brothers, desperate for honor, they get it in the end. They're honored in Egypt, but they're honored because of Joseph. You're honored because of Jesus. He gives us our dignity. Now, before we dive in, I just want to give a caveat about this sermon, and that is that uh, the text we're covering is like four chapters, four long chapters of narrative. Uh, One, I've never done that before, so I I don't know how this is going to go. They're not going to be on screen, so we're going to need a Bible handy and a Bible app. Um, Second is uh, I've never preached four chapters of narrative at once before, but I'm not worried because as we were reading this morning in Jeremiah 23 before service, God's word is like a fire and a hammer that breaks rocks. The Lord is committed to his word, and we're going to read a lot of his word today. So I'm actually deeply excited about that. And uh, last caveat is that while the Holy Spirit, I expect him to convict our hearts deeply of specific things and comfort us deeply in certain areas. In other words, the Holy Spirit will give us application points, but I'm only going to give you one, and that is to worship Jesus, to gaze at the one who is worthy of all honor and praise. That's the application point. So don't look for more steps. That's it. Now, let me pray for the Lord's help, and then we'll dive in. Father, as we look at Jacob's beloved son and your beloved son today, I ask that you will move mountains through your word, that you will lift up and glorify and honor your son in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that your word will resound like thunder in our hearts and that you'll help me speak truth for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, we're just going to do two points today. Uh, point number one is, is Jacob's beloved son, and then two will be God's beloved son. But let's just dive right in to Jacob's beloved son. We're going to be reading between Genesis 37 and 41 today. So you can open your Bibles to Genesis 37 to start. And we'll read the first 11 uh, verses. And as we flip there, I just want to orient you to two really important themes of this text. Remember, this is a crafted, artful, beautiful story. And with great intentionality and attention to detail, the, the author has woven in some themes for us to watch. One of those is a garment, a robe. In the Joseph story, the robe or the garment is a signal of honor. Now, we're not terribly confused by that. I mean, um, you know, a, a bride on her wedding day is honored, and part of that representation is the beautiful gown, right? So we understand clothes and honor. Well, it's important to keep that in mind as we read this story all throughout the rest of Genesis. It's a, a robe is a signal of honor, and likewise, being, um, having a robe or garment taken from you is a signal of dishonor, right? It's a signal of humiliation, So that's the first theme we're going to look at, and that's going to matter. The second one is bowing. And that one's probably more obvious, right? Bowing or prostrating yourself before someone is a a gesture that does two things. It bestows honor on the person you're bowing to, and it um, embodies humility for yourself. It lifts them up as you go down, 
right? That's what bowing does. And bowing is also going to play an important feature in this story. So keep those two things in mind, the garment and the bowing. And let's read now from Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Hmm. Well, this is the first of four scenes we're going to look at in the Joseph story. This is the first scene. Scene one. He's honored by his father. He gets this robe that sets him apart, distinguishes him from all the rest. In scene two, he's going to be humbled down to the pit. And you probably know how that's going to go. Scene three, he goes lower still into prison. And then in scene four, he's exalted at the right hand of Pharaoh. And it says he saved the world. Remember, the way up is down. And you can see it even in the shape of the story, can't you? Going from scene one with the father's honor to scene four with Pharaoh's honor. And in the middle is a pit and a prison. So for Joseph's dreams to be fulfilled... And they will be, right? He dreams twice and probably foolishly tells them about the dreams. Um, not very socially aware that, <laughs> you know, the sheaf's bowing and the star's bowing. That's going to happen. But he's going to have to get low first. So let's look at the next scene of the story then. Joseph's brothers are far afield. They're a shepherding family. And so they're doing their shepherding work. And the father who's made Joseph sort of a manager of his brothers, right? The, the sort of report that Joseph brings about his brothers. He's kind of the master of his brothers. And the father then sends Joseph out to go find them because they're far out afield. So he asks around and wanders for a while and eventually finds where they're at. And as he's approaching their brothers, they see him from far off, just out on the horizon. They're like, oh, there's that coat shining in the sun. There's daddy's favorite. And they make a plan to betray him. They make a plan to betray him by throwing him down into a deep pit that has no water. 
Now let's read from that point then, Genesis 37, starting in verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And that's the close of scene two. Joseph is now in Egypt. Now, part of the reason this story was even written in the first place was simply to answer the Israelites' questions, how did we get to Egypt? And so that's what it's doing for the first readers, is saying, here's how you got to Egypt, right? The father is bereft of his son. The father thinks he's dead because they take that robe they tore off him and they dip it in goat's blood. And they say, look, some wild beast has devoured our brother. So the father's mourning. The brothers have gotten rid of the meddling boy who was their father's favorite. And it uh, doesn't seem to be going so well at this point. So let's plow forward into scene three. Scene three begins with Joseph now in Potiphar's house. He's still a slave, um, but he's proven himself a wise man of integrity. So Joseph has been put in charge of everything in Potiphar's house, right? Still a slave, but a master in some sense. So let's pick up our reading in chapter 39 now. Flip over a couple pages, starting in the second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie down beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story. Let's just stop there for a moment, right? So remember what the garment was a signal for. 
It's about honor. And being stripped of your garment is the signal for dishonor and humiliation. You see, he had been taken as out of that pit and sold into slavery and given the dignity of ruling over this household, though a slave. And that garment that he wore, sort of the manager's garb, was ripped from him in a moment of shame and humiliation. And then she perpetuates the lie two different times, repeating that story. Look what he's done. Look at his shame. Well, let's keep going from verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So when his brothers stripped him of the garment, he is cast into the pit. Potiphar's wife strips him of the garment, and he's cast into prison. And there's really just not much lower Joseph could go now. They could kill him. That's about the worst that they could go beyond this. This is the king's prison. Think Tower of London dungeon kind of thing, right? This is where the worst enemies go of the king. But he was a very honorable man. And even in his humiliation, as a slave, he became master of Potiphar's house. As a prisoner, he became master of the prison because God was with him. So where are we going to go from here, right? He started with honor. Scene one, scene two, he went down. Scene three, he went lower. But the way up is down. So let's look at scene four. Here's the backdrop. There's a couple more kind of enemies of state that get chucked into prison along with Joseph while he's there. There's a a baker and a cupbearer for the king. Uh, Don't know what they did to get there, but it's not looking good. You get thrown in the king's prison, you get forgotten. That's where you end. But both of those two inmates had a dream, different dreams. And Joseph, full of the Spirit of God, interpreted those dreams to them. And word got out. Word got out to Pharaoh that he had correctly and wisely interpreted these dreams. So when Pharaoh had a dream, in fact, two disturbing dreams, he called for Joseph to be brought out of the pit. And Pharaoh's dreams were a foreshadowing of a really terrible years-long famine that was going to strike not just Egypt, but that whole Middle East region. And so, of course, all of the counselors of Pharaoh are saying, look, if Joseph's right, and if years of famine is about to just wipe us all out, we've got to find someone in whom is the spirit of a God that can give wise counsel and save us from this conundrum. And Joseph says, well, I've got a plan. And so they put Joseph in charge right then and there. So first he's the master of his brothers. Then he's the master of Potiphar's house. Then he's the master of prison. And now he's master of all of Egypt, all of Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't have to worry about a thing because Joseph's got it under control. Let's pick up in Genesis 41 now. 
verse 40. This is about the height of Joseph's honor and exaltation. Pharaoh says this, verse 40, he says, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he did what? He clothed him in garments of fine linen. And he put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him. Remember the second theme. Bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. If you're following the threads of the story with the garment and the bowing, it has come full circle now. Stripped and thrown into the pit, right? Stripped and thrown into prison. And now Pharaoh, the king of the land, right? And Egypt is a well-off, wealthy nation at this point. This is an important man, one of the most important men in the world at that stage. And he clothes Joseph in fine linen, a new royal garment, and says, I am only greater as regards the throne. Everything else is in this Hebrew slave's hands. And then he parades him through Egypt in a chariot next to Pharaoh's chariot and has heralds shouting in front of him, bow the knee. This is the boy who dreamed the dream of the sheiks and the stars. And now all of Egypt is bowing to him. And if you're familiar with the story or you've seen the DreamWorks version or whatever, you'll know that there's a lot more to the story. This is just chapter 41. It goes on to chapter 50. Uh, his brothers, way off in Canaan, are severely afflicted by the famine as well and end up having to come to Egypt to seek aid. And they don't recognize Joseph, right? He's, it's been years. He looks Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian now. And so Joseph recognizes them and he tests them and he eventually does reveal his identity to them. And what do the brothers do when they learn who he is? They bow. In fact, they prostrate themselves on the ground, face down in front of him, like sheaves or stars taking the knee. Why is this in the Bible? It's a good story, right? Like fascinating plot, beautiful artistry, but why is it in the Bible? It's not here merely to give us a moral example of be like Joseph. Should we be like Joseph? Sure, in some ways, right? Maybe if you have dreams about people bowing to you, don't tell them. But in general, yeah, follow Joseph's example. That's fine. But there's lots of good examples in the world. They didn't all make it into the Bible. Why is this one here? It's here to point us to the better story of a beloved son, who had exaltation and glory and came down and came down lower still and then was exalted to the point where every knee will bow. That is why it's here. It's to point us to Jesus. In Genesis 50, uh, it's when Jacob, J Joseph's father, he dies. The brothers realize maybe it just was the father that was keeping peace with Joseph. And so they come to his presence just trembling. They're terrified. They're fearful that Joseph would retaliate. And Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
God sent Jacob's beloved son down to Egypt to save the very brothers who betrayed him. And he said that was God's plan all along. Now let's think about point number two, God's beloved son. Now, God is three persons, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And from eternity past, this trinity, right, these three persons in one God have had perfect communion together, perfect fellowship, perfect unity, perfect love, and perfect honor. God is, in a sense, a community of persons that have been bestowing honor on one another for all of eternity, perfectly. And God the Father has a unique, special affection and love for God the Son. Nothing that God had created, He did not create the Son. The Son is eternally coexistent with the Father. But nothing that Father, Son, and Spirit put their hands to could compare for the heart, could compete for the heart of the Father compared to the Son. Like Jacob loved Joseph and made him master of his brothers, Jesus said in John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Or in John 5, he says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus was a student of Scripture, by the way, and studied his Bible. He studied this story to learn what the Father does and how the Father works. And he says, oh, I feel loved by that. Jesus felt loved by Bible study because it shows him what God is like. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So the story of Jacob's beloved son points to God's beloved son. And just like Joseph moved through those four scenes that we talked about, so does Jesus. Now, Pastor Ryan read for, read for us earlier from Philippians 2, but turn back there again with me, if you will. Philippians in the New Testament, about halfway through the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. I'll give you a moment to get there. Starting in verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, pause, whoa, <laughs> the form of God. Don't glaze over that lightly. Jesus was honored by the Father. He was of the same substance as God. He had the form of God, eternal glory and majesty. So, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he was. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, to be clung on to desperately. But instead, he what? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, Jesus went in scene one from honor, form of God, exaltation. He went down, scene two, to earth the realm of the dead, if you will, right? Where us like clay people walk around making messes of things. A place of slavery. He came down to earth as a human. 
And Paul continues, scene three, being found in human form, he humbled himself, lower still, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me, like, just to change how our ears hear that, even death on a Roman execution rack meant to torture the worst of the criminals. It doesn't get any lower than that. So he was humbled down to earth and he was humbled lower still down to death, but he did not stay dead. Hallelujah. Joseph was the master of Potiphar's house. Jesus was master, rabbi, Lord to his disciples here. Joseph was the master of prison and Jesus became the master of death. He conquered death. Do you remember the story in Judges when Samson rips the gates off the hinges of the city and marches up to a hill and puts them on the hill. That's what Jesus did to hell and death. He rips the gates off the hinge and he makes a spectacle of it. Jesus is the master of death. And because of his humility, because of the obedience of Christ, all the way down to that point, here's what Paul says, therefore, that means on the basis of that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So Jesus came down and down again to flip the self-help wisdom of this world on its head. And now the way up is down, and the way to honor is through humility, and it's through Christ. Without Jesus, we... (laughs) We'll never have that longing satisfied until we can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's nothing more honorable than that. That is our highest honor. So the moral of the story is not be like Joseph so you can get honor. It's not, it's not what it's about. The moral of the story is worship and bow before the one who is worthy of all honor and praise. As we uh, wrap up the message, let's think about the last theme that, um, of the story. We, we talked about how every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. That is a cosmic inevitability right? We should bow now while we can, but everyone will bow one day. But what about the garment? Now, this is one of my favorite things in the Bible. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. The gospel writer, John, points back to the book of Isaiah, and he's referencing Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, the king Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, right? Isaiah 6, the prophet gets a vision of God's glory. And he doesn't even see God's face. He sees just his garment, right? He sees the robe. So God is seated on a throne, and his robe represents his glory and honor, and it fills the cosmos. That's Isaiah's vision. John says in John chapter 12, Isaiah saw the glory of who? Of Jesus. That was a vision of Jesus. 
the glory and honor of Christ. In the next chapter, John chapter 13, Jesus, just like Yahweh in Isaiah 6 is seated on a throne, Jesus is seated at the head of a table with his friends. And they're about to eat the Last Supper. And just like Yahweh has a robe that fills the temple, Jesus is clothed in his normal attire. But Jesus, the Lord of glory, stands up from his chair of honor and he takes off his robe. And he puts on the rags of a servant, a slave. He dressed himself like a slave. And he got down on his knees and personally wiped the grime off of his friend's feet. Every knee will bow to that man. But he took a knee for us. If the robe is the signal of honor and glory, no one has a more glorious garment than Christ. And he took it off. He did it willingly. No one stripped him of his robe. Just like Joseph was stripped of his garments twice, Jesus is as well. He takes it off here. And only after he willingly says, I'm going to go all the way for you. John says, after loving his own, he loved them to the end. Only after that do they strip him of his robe at the cross. When he'd already said, I'm all in, I'm going all the way down in humility. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have the power to take it back up again. So when he's stripped of his robe at the cross and they clothe him in purple to mock him, they didn't realize that it was the coronation of the king of the universe. Man. No one strips Jesus of his honor. He gets down on his knees for you willingly because he loves you and because the Father loves you. And therefore, God has exalted him beyond every name and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To God sent his beloved son down to the earth to save the very ones who betrayed him. And Jesus, friends, is not interested in retaliation. John three seventeen, that Pastor Ryan read to us earlier, says he did not come to condemn the world, but that through him it might be saved. He didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to re retaliate. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about the coming of the Son of God to save people like us in spite of ourselves. And no one is more worthy of honor and praise. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray for a moment silently and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. <clears throat>